Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide. New York City DSA is our biggest chapter. We're run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. I'm a worker and organizer here in New York City, and my pronouns are she, her. Hey, and I'm Bernard Goider as well. I'll be co-presenting the show. I'm a journalist and activist here in New York as well. My pronouns are he and him. Tonight is a special night here on RPM as we are celebrating our 200th episode. We've been broadcasting here on WBAI for almost five years, and in that time have featured the stories of hundreds of workers, tenants, and organizers fighting for socialism in New York City, in the United States, and around the globe. It's a true honor and a privilege to bring these stories to you, and we are looking forward to what the future has in store. For our live broadcast this evening, we're joined by Honda Wang of DSA Labor. As a New York City delegate to the recent National DSA Convention in Chicago, Honda will be sharing his analysis of the present and future of DSA and what's next in the struggle for socialism. We also hear from a network of New York City DSA organizers who, inspired by their work in the organization, are organizing for tenants' rights in their own buildings and neighborhoods. It's going to be a great show, and we do hope to take your calls later in the hour. But first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz. Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, August 29th. In local news, a ProPublica investigation found that over a five-year period, 127,000 workers in New York suffered over $200 million in wage theft. In that time, the state's labor commissioner, Roberta Reardon, has overseen a decline in efforts to recover lost wages. Contractors who work with the city's anti-harassment tenant protection program say that changes to the city's contract will force them to dramatically scale back their work in combating illegal rent increases and unsafe conditions. Many prominent Democrats, including State Senator Roxanne Persaud, District 19 East New York, and former Brooklyn Democratic Party Chair Frank Cedillo rallied alongside Curtis Lewa and other Republicans in opposition to a proposed shelter for migrants at Floyd Bennett Field in South Brooklyn. The New York Police Department's Chief of Risk Management was forced to resign after criticizing the department's increased use of dangerous vehicle pursuits. Assemblymember Jennifer Rajkumar, District 38, Ozone Park, has cultivated a highly public alliance with Mayor Eric Adams, 
appearing at multiple press conferences with the mayor and calling him the greatest mayor of all time. An NYPD sergeant threw a plastic cooler at the head of a man driving a motorbike, causing him to crash and thereby killing him. The surgeon was suspended and is now under investigation by the attorney general. In a recently published draft of an updated solid waste management plan, the Department of Environmental Conservation, DEC, proposes a new statewide fee on every ton of trash that doesn't get recycled or composted. The example fee of $5 per ton would mean an added cost of $10 per household per year. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by the NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. And now let's turn to our live guest here in the studio. We've got Honda Wang with us. Um, Honda, you've been a guest on RPM before and helped behind the scenes with a few episodes, but why don't you introduce yourself um, to our listening audience and give us a bit of your background as as an organizer? Absolutely. My name is Honda Wang. Uh, My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm a member of the New York City DSA chapter, and I currently serve on the steering committee of DSA's National Labor Commission, also known as DSA Labor. Uh, As a public sector worker, I'm also a rank-and-file union member in AFSCME. Uh, I've been a DSA member since 2017, and I came through socialism through the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign and eventually found a home in the labor movement alongside my DSA comrades. Fantastic. Um, and um, what have you kind of been focused on organizing kind of the last few, uh, the, the, this, uh, this year so far? What have your priorities been? Yeah, at the national level, uh, with the uh, National Labor Commission, our focus has really been on our Strike Ready campaign, which was about uh, making sure that uh, DSA stood in solidarity with Teamsters during their contract campaign. Uh, And uh, locally here in New York City, we also had our own union power campaign, which is a really expansive effort uh, to build up a fighting working class in terms of organizing new shops, uh, connecting with district residents to support labor legislation uh, like Just Cause, uh, and also labor solidarity work. Uh, Right now, we're sort of in the midst of it with SAG-AFTRA, as well as the writers uh, 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 strike. And uh, we're going to be looking forward uh, to the near future as to uh, uh, additional labor struggles to support here and around the metropolitan area. Fantastic. Um, And we've potentially got a uh, UAW strike on our hands at the national level as well. That's right. With the big three, uh, looking forward to talking a little bit more about that in detail later on in the show. Fantastic. Thank you, Honda. So happy that you're joining us live here in the studio. Um, For folks in the listening audience, if you're just tuning in, this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. And today we are celebrating RPM's 200th episode by speaking about the recent National DSA Convention, which gives us some idea of where DSA might be heading in the next two years and beyond and where the socialist movement more broadly might be heading as well. So I'm really excited to hear Honda's thoughts on that, as well as yours, Bernard. Um, But before we move on, 
um, I do just want to take a moment to recognize the fact that it's pretty darn cool that this is our 200th episode um, and to recognize all the people who make RPM possible, both those that you hear on the air and those who are working behind the scenes. This show is a grassroots labor of love for all of us. We're all volunteers. Uh, we keep the show going. And I personally think what's kept us together all these years is a shared commitment to socialist media, um, to seeing stories that aren't represented elsewhere, uh, represented on 99.5 FM. And what's more, not telling other people's stories, but allowing people to tell their own stories here on this platform that we're privileged to have on WBAI. So as somebody who's been with RPM for the last four and a half years, it's been a huge part of my own organizing, something that's been really important to me. And I think I could probably guess the same of my comrades in the RPM Production Collective. So we're grateful to all of you for listening and supporting and to our platform here on WBAI. And with that, I'll send it back to you, Bernard. Fantastic. Yeah, really, really keen to celebrate our 200th episode after it's been it's been a great ride um and yeah really really proud of the work that the collective's put to get been, been doing in all these different shows um but yeah i'll, I'll turn it back to honda maybe and, and we can kind of start start discussing some of the uh yeah some, some of the themes around organizing that we've had had this year um uh we're going to be hearing a little bit from some comrades who've been active in the housing movement and what would be great is to kind of explore some of the similarities between tenant organizing and union organizing um, and trying to kind of draw together some of those themes. Um, but I don't know if you, you wanted to just give us give us your impression of, uh, of where the labor movement's at in New York City at this point, Honda, uh, before we head to the next clip. Absolutely. Um, I think the labor movement right now is uh, sort of on the upswing, especially here in New York, where uh, workers have been organizing across the city, not just the workers that are on the picket line right now uh, with SAG and the writers, uh, but also workers that are organizing in new shops like uh, the Barbacino uh, workers in Crown Heights who uh, organized their shop, which is really fantastic. And they had some help from Ewok, which is uh, a partner organization uh, built up by DSA and the United Electrical Union. Um, additionally, I think with Teamsters uh, winning a strong contract, they're able to sort of move forward and uh, be a real inspiration for other workers um, as they're trying to fight for a strong contract of their own. And uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, we are organizing to support the big three uh, workers uh, in the UAW, uh, not just uh, in Detroit, but importantly, we have uh, uh, you know uh, uh, DSA members as well as rank and file union members here in New York that can support them directly as UAW members. Uh, Brandon Mancia in UAW Region 9A is a fantastic uh, representative of uh, what we can do when we work to support union reform movements and his outward out uh, outward facing support for the workers um, across the country uh, uh, for and uh, the big three auto workers. Um, uh, is sort of representative of what we can achieve when we can work at it in terms of these uh, rank and file union reform. Thank you, Honda. DSA members across the city are taking the fight to landlords, helping to organize tenants. I caught up with three different tenant organizers, all in different boroughs, to talk about their involvement in the tenant struggle against landlords. Let's hear that clip now. My name is Smitha Milik. She, hers. 
And I'm with, um, I'm in uh, Queens. And I am Adam Blazy, he, him. I'm in Upper Manhattan. And I'm Mac Parker, he, him, and I'm in North Brooklyn. Smith, like, first of all, how did you get involved in tenant organizing? Yeah, so um, it was pretty much after that resolution passed at the last New York City DSA convention around independent working, building up independent working class organizations. I struggled with finding a place that um, I fit in New York City DSA. And, you know, this was a new space and understanding the concept of what they were trying to do really appealed to me. Uh, tenant organizing is really new to me. My background is education advocacy in New York City, public education advocacy. Um, and, you know, for me, I was just like, oh, I can agitate around socialism when I'm talking to tenants about their landlords. Like, I feel like that's something that I can, I can really, I can really do. Um, and so I joined that space. And so it's been... I don't know, I think it passed two years ago. So it's been like a solid year. Um, and, you know, we, we split up into, we had like that resolution passed. We had, a, we had a, a meeting right after we split into boroughs and I've been in the Queens group ever since. Fantastic. Um, Mac, what about you? Yeah, I actually started doing tenant organizing in 2020. And I think similar to Smith, uh, I was I was trying to find a place for myself in DSA to some extent, and I joined Broom Street's tenants, Broom Street Tenants Alliance, which was kind of a precursor to some of these efforts in Lower Manhattan, which is where I was living at the time. And it actually started just with some DSA members who were trying to organize their own buildings, and. We kind of started working on those and then broadened out to uh, working with tenants in the Lower East Side and the East Village. Nice. Um, and then Adam, you've, you've come to this more recently, right? <clears throat> yeah, I only joined DSA maybe six or eight months ago. Um, previously, I had done work organizing with a Columbia University Graduate Workers um, Union and you know that that was just like a a, a workers union um, but we organized a strike uh, we were organizing a strike um, just as the pandemic was beginning uh, and around uh, that time too uh, we started expanding the work to like uh, like tenant and housing work um, thinking not just of Columbia as being you know a exploitive employer but also uh exploitive uh and very big landlord um and yeah i think that's when i began to think about um housing really as something around which to organize and, and yeah i really felt like a tenant i felt the um um uh yeah lack of control over my home um and so yeah since then i've been involved with tenant work and how did the, um, sticking with you, Adam, how, how did the Dry Hill campaign get going and kind of what, what what's your involvement been in that? Yeah, around the time of the pandemic, we moved, my, my, my family moved uh, up to Inwood, which is like the tippy top of Manhattan. And we had like immediate problems in our apartment from the beginning. Uh, we didn't have hot water. There were tons of rats in our building, in our apartment. Um, 
there was just lots of problems. Uh, we didn't have heat uh, for several days. Um, and, yeah, one weekend when it got particularly bad, talked to my neighbors. Um, everyone agreed. Yeah, there's lots of problems. And we started taking action. We, we, we wrote a letter, signed a letter, sent it to the landlord. Uh, and, and that got some uh, uh, issues addressed. Um, and since then, we've we've continued to, like, build on our organizing um, uh, um, to, like, get some more wins in our building. I should say, like, so our management company is a company called Tri-Hill Management. Um, but that's just the uh, uh, a property management affiliate for a um, private equity firm, one of the largest buyers of real estate in northern Manhattan, um, called Sugar Hill Capital Partners. And... Um, so when me and my neighbors were organizing in our building and getting some wins, we kind of realized that we were um, limited by how much that we could really win from Sugar Hill. We also, we knew because they had been listed as like the number one worst landlord in the city by the New York City Public Advocate. We knew that there were problems across a lot of their buildings. So um, myself and some others like started reaching out to tenants of other buildings under Tri-Hill Management owned by Sugar Hill Capital Partners um talking about patterns of problems and how we could support each other in our organizing efforts got it and Spencer, what what's your kind of organizing experience been like in queens is it is it some of the similar strategies around around kind of getting get on this portfolio approach you know we we attempted that initially it it, it was it was off to a rocky start initially um we wanted to start with our own buildings we recognize that one of the members in our group did uh, live in a building uh, owned by a landlord who owned like 20 other buildings um, and did some research. We found a building, like a 60 unit building in Ridgewood that had a ton of complaints and multiple martial evictions. Um, and, and while um, one of the organizers, he shared the landlord, none of us lived in the building. So we were just, it was, it was to a rocky start because it was like a new place for all of us, even though it was a block away from where I live, I live in Ridgewood. Um, so we had went to that building um, and met about three to four tenants who were down to canvas the building and take lead on, you know, having meetings around repairs needed and all the issues going on. Um, and, but I think that one was harder because it was from outside. Um, so, so that was just like, I guess sort of similar, but it's been a little bit different for, for us in Queens. Um, you know, we, we eventually had people start reaching out to us. So there is a building in Ridgewood um, where, you know, there it's a rent regulated building, but everyone's being overcharged. And so initially they had reached out to, not going to say who, but a tenant union in in the area who basically rejected them and was like, look, we don't have capacity. We're a bunch of volunteers. You need a lawyer. You need money to do this. And then they reached out to us and we were like, what are they talking about? We're going to do this. We're going to support you. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm new to this, but we're connected to so many great organizers who know how to read rent histories and all that. So we just looked through the rent histories, realized they were all being overcharged. There was a leader already um, who we were supporting. And basically uh, we've just been, you know, sort of just, they've been leading the meetings, running the meetings, making their own demands. And we've gotten to the point where the landlord, they, they wrote their demands. They said, we're, we know we're being overcharged. They made their demands. They met with the landlord and the landlord was like, you're right. 
you're totally right. You are being overcharged. I'm going to give you like retro like pay. I'm going to reduce your rent um, and I'm going to fix your repairs. Some tenant, this tenant didn't even have floors and the, the landlord came in, gave them floors, started sweeping the hallways. Like they saw, you know, it's not even, it's, it's small, but it's huge. Um, and they're so empowered now. Um, so that's in Ridgewood. But then we also have, uh, the, he's a Starbucks organizer, and he's now, uh, uh, this guy James, he is trying to build um, like tenant power in Astoria. So we have that project going on as well. Um, we have a couple of comrades uh, in our group who's been supporting him with canvassing a bunch of buildings in Astoria. They just had their first tenant meeting uh, a couple days ago. So it's very, it's very organic um, and it's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, what's it been like working with these kind of some of these existing um, housing organizations? Um, Adam, I know I know that you've been kind of plugged into. I, I was in a meeting with, with with you guys in Trihill recently, kind of with a uh, with some of these outside organizations. What, what what's it been like, and how does how, how do kind of DSA members plug into the, the wider movement in New York? There's been lots of buildings under Sugar Hill Capital Partners and Trihill Management that have you know, had lots of issues, sought help from different um, organizations, and they got frustrated with that, uh, or they got disenchanted or, or disillusioned by, by all that. And so we've tried to like leverage that a little bit, saying like, look, um, these organizations, they do what they do well, but there's a- another way that we can go about organizing. Um, and so like the, you know, the language that we use picking up from others in the tenant movement is, these organizations, um, elected officials, they provide a shield, but what tenants need to do is pick up the sword. To Adam's point around some of these housing groups, I'm sorry, if you're in a coalition with landlords, I don't care what kind of landlord they are, small, good landlords, whatever, I don't think you're ever going to really mobilize for rent strikes. I don't think, like, you know, many of us work in nonprofits and we're trying to do the best work we can, but we know they come with serious limit- limitations. And so this building, you know, we, we're totally like, one of your options, like withhold your rent. If you want, whatever you guys are comfortable with, like whatever your demands are and what you're willing to do. Um, and so they, that was one of, that was what they had threatened to do. Um, and I, you know, and they, that's a sword. That's a sword right there. The situation is a little different in Brooklyn just because there are so many independent tenant unions already. We've been working really closely with Brooklyn Eviction Defense uh, in North Brooklyn. And I think that they've helped us like move to like take up that sword more. Like some of our members were even a little hesitant to like push push tenants towards the rent strike, but they kind of helped us clarify like that that really is our like our biggest weapon in in our struggle against landlords. That's where our leverage comes from. And yeah, we've been we've been moving more and more towards that. And not just, I guess, the rent strike like as as like a tool in itself, but also like the rent strike as a way of like getting landlords to the table, like getting them to actually negotiate with you as a tenants union so that, uh, yeah, you can kind of like get your demands met, uh, maybe even before having to go on strike, but just by like letting your landlord know that you're ready to do that and that you're committed to it. Like this is kind of open for anyone. What would your advice be to tenants listening? Like what, what should they do to 
mobilize against their landlord, to work with other tenants to support the movement? Just talk to your neighbors. You know, I, I was born and raised in Queens. Hola. Sorry, one sec. <laughs> so, yeah, just, you know, we, we're all in New York City. Uh, people are really isolated here, and that's what capitalism does. It alienates all of us. And so it really, it's just going back to the basics. Like, maybe you do talk to your neighbors. I personally do know, like, the guy who lives to the left and right of me. But that is, like, very rare. That wasn't always the case for me, and that's just so common for most people. So talking to your neighbor is, like, really valuable, and at minimum, like, that's what you need to do. Just create a group chat create a group chat, you know, like have a social, start off with a social. Um, and, you know, it, it starts there because then once you start building that connection, then you start talking about what are the shared struggles? What what do we have in common? Like what's going on in your, in your space that's not being addressed? It really starts with a conversation. We live in a time when mental health is like really really degrading for so like just it's it's decaying for so many people so anxiety is up there so i think it's like a really big challenge for us to just talk to each other but you know it, it really just starts with that so let's kind of push for, like look forward i guess to 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 the future and to a kind of what would the what's the dream goal for a kind of do you think we need to have like a new york wide tenants union i mean i i think that we we do want to build a citywide tenant union i think that that that's certainly my goal. That's uh, certainly a lot of other organizers that I talk to, that's their goal. I think one of the main things in kind of like ensuring that, yeah, that it doesn't become this sort of bureaucratized thing is uh, exactly what Adam was saying earlier about like treating tenants like protagonists, like making sure that the tenants are the lifeblood of all of our tenants unions and continue to be as we move forward and hopefully start to coalesce into uh, like a larger formation. Uh, and I think also like keeping keeping our unions and our groups like democratic and making sure that yeah tenants are involved in decision making like all the way up and that they're the ones really taking the reins in these organizations you just heard three tenant organizers smitha mac and adam with new york city dsa i'm amy wilson here with bernard goiter you are listening to revolutions per minute on listener sponsored wbai in new york city broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we are celebrating our 200th episode of RPM by taking some time to reflect on the future of DSA, as predicted by our highest decision-making body, the National Convention, which occurred earlier this month in Chicago. We've got a great guest live in the studio, NYC DSA member Honda Wang, and we will be getting back to our interview with him soon. But first, it's that time in the show when we take a moment to ask you to please support WBAI. I'm going to tell you why. I think you should support WBAI in just a second. But if you'd like to just skip straight to the chase and give your donation now, you can call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 or go to WBAI.org. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about how RPM is a labor of love made by people who think socialist media is not only cool, but also important and vital to a healthy socialist movement and the goals that we're trying to achieve to better the lives of the working class here in New York City and elsewhere. And we are obviously putting our money where our mouth is by volunteering our own labor um, to produce RPM. But we're really not the only ones. So far in this show, just tonight, 
Um, we've heard about the Barboncino workers, the unionized pizzeria in Crown Heights. We've heard about Starbucks unionism. We've heard about Brandon Mancia, the reformer candidate who won leadership in UAW Region 9A. We've heard about Columbia student workers organizing, rent strikes, fighting back against landlord corruption. And those are all topics we've covered in the past 200 episodes on RPM. Our mission here is to speak to people who are doing the work and walking the walk. So many of the themes of RPM are about simply talking to your neighbor or your coworker, getting organized, getting together, uh, talking about your goals, what you'd like to see differently, and having the courage to take collective action. So my question to you out there in the listening audience is, what have you done to walk the walk recently? Here at RPM, we are all about taking action, and we hope that our shows will inspire you to get involved with organizing however you can. Of course, donating money is just one way to be involved, but it is a really important one, especially when it comes to supporting a historic institution like WBAI, which gives us our platform, which has made it possible for us to broadcast 200 shows, and not just us, but many, many shows uh, throughout the week, throughout the day on WBAI, which are bringing important perspectives. Uh, tonight, we have a guest engineer in the studio, Wuyi Jacobs, who does an amazing Afrobeat music show uh, on Wednesday nights. That is an incredible window into the culture of an entire continent. I learn so much every time I listen to it. And we are just two of the shows that are broadcast on WBAI. So you're listening, you're tuned in, you haven't turned it off. So obviously we're saying something that you like. Um, so please consider walking the walk, giving a little bit of money to say that this is an important institution that's supporting important voices. You can do that by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 or go to wbai.org. We are Revolutions Per Minute. We're here on WBAI every Tuesday at 7 p.m. And if we inspired you to give your donation, please let the station know that. Tell them we sent you. Uh, we are Revolutions Per Minute. And if you can, make that a monthly donation so we know that WBAI can stay on the air for many, many years to come. Once again, 212-209-2950 or WBAI.org. And thank you all so very much. We're so grateful to all of our listeners and our supporters. So now turning back to our live interview here in the station, um, Honda, do you have any response to what we just heard from the tenant organizers, your comrades here in New York City DSA? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, here in New York, uh, this is a city which really exemplifies uh, that divide between the owning class and the working class. Like we live in a city with incredibly high income inequality, with incredibly high rents, where the owning class shapes it into a really hostile environment for working class life. Just as employers ratchet up the pace of work and demands for productivity to extract as much value they can from workers, landlords will ratchet up rents to extract as much as they can from tenants. Uh, but of course, it doesn't have to be this way. Because of this extractive relationship, those who are being exploited have some built-in leverage against their exploiters, if and only if they're organized to act collectively against that owning class. And so because of this, it's absolutely imperative that we build working class organization through durable institutions like labor unions, like tenants associations that can cohere everyday people into a force that can make the owning class 
bend to our demands. And that brings us quite neatly onto um, our next segment. Uh, in terms of, I want to discuss the the DSA convention and how we how we actually create create that kind of the socialist socialist paradise that we want in the world. Um, uh, part of that's through organizations um, and that organizational process. So, Honda, can you tell us a bit about the DSA convention in Chicago? For people that aren't familiar with the organization, tell us what happened and why it matters. Absolutely. So DSA's national convention, it happens every two years, and it's the highest decision-making body in our organization because it convenes uh, over a thousand delegates from chapters across our country. Uh, And it took place here uh, uh, this year in Chicago, and those delegates met to discuss, debate, and vote on the future of our direction as an organization in in a democratic way. And to give some context here, our organization has seen some pretty explosive growth over the past few years. Uh, In 2016, our organization only had about 8,000 members, and that has since grown to nearly 80,000 members today. And so this rapid expansion over such a short period of time has meant dealing with quite a few growing pains, especially in a big tent socialist organization, which represents so many political different, uh, so many different political tendencies on the left. And so, as you can imagine, convening uh, a thousand people who are relatively new to democratic organizations, let alone socialism, can lead to a bit of a tumultuous experience. But this year, this particular national convention was special because of how unified our organization felt coming out of it. While we did have our disagreements, while we did have our debates, fundamentally, at the end of the day, we all came together to vote overwhelmingly in favor of certain strategic priorities that we had and uh, and to vote for a new direction of our organization so we can build upon our recent successes and continue to grow DSA into the force of socialism it can be. And so some you know, key outcomes from convention include things like supporting independent electoral campaigns, right? So not necessarily hitching our ride with the Democratic Party, but increasingly building an independent political identity as democratic socialists. Uh, we are committing to building more agitational and independent electoral projects that uses uh, infrastructure that's separate from the Democratic Party, that forces us to build socialist caucuses and legislatures that we win seats in and creating our own brand identity as democratic socialists to help distinguish ourselves from other run-of-the-mill progressives to show that our electeds and our candidates are committed to a democratic and collective organization like DSA and not just uh, you know, uh, lone wolves out there uh, because there can be a lot of pressure out there and you need a socialist organization behind you to stand up to that pressure. We also committed to more rank-and-file labor organizing. Uh, uh, to give you some context, in 2019, uh, you know, an or- a resolution naming the rank-and-file strategy as our orientation only barely won. This year, a supermajority of the delegates at convention believes that a central goal of our labor organizing must be building up power on the shop floor 
through rank and file workers. Uh, we rejected a strategy that would have allowed for, you know, focusing on relationship building with union officials for access. And instead, we're all about trying to build up a bottom up movement of workers that can really drive home uh, the, you know, the need for democracy and unions, as well as leadership from the rank and file. It's a political strategy that really focuses on making socialism possible, on making the types of politics and types of organizing that DSA believes impossible by applying the principles of democratic organization to uh, our union organizing as well as our broader organizing as socialists. Uh, and then third, uh, the third sort of, I think, really most important thing to come out of this convention is uh, really developing our internal democracy. We've uh, opted to increase our publications as DSA, so uh, as well as creating uh, additional uh, editors for these publications so we can get more of our views out there. We believed in putting together a democracy commission to help reform our organization to deal with this massive size increase that we've seen over the past two years. Because, you know, the organization that we have right now was built for a much smaller group uh, than where we are right now. And also we believed in, uh, we supported and voted on uh, paid full-time national co-chairs on our national political committee, which is the lead leadership body in between conventions. And so Having full-time co-chairs uh, for the National Political Committee means that we can put a more public face for DSA out there, right? It's not just going to be our electeds who are speaking for our members, but our actual elected uh organizational leaders speaking for a DSA and putting a socialist view out there and agitating and bringing more everyday people to our organization. So which movement victories under have brought you the most joy over the last year and how does that kind of relate to the rank and file strategy that you that you discussed yeah interestingly enough i i think maybe the, the movement victory of the most impact at this very moment was uh sean fain winning the presidency of the uaw in the runoff election uh sean fain uh is a reformer he now sits ahead of you know one of the biggest unions uh with the most resources with a really big contract negotiation coming up and he has really set the tone for what a militant labor movement can achieve and can really build towards um in one of his videos recently he you know took the contract proposal from stellantis and threw it into a trash bin instead of doing a promotional handshake with auto company executives he instead did member handshakes where he talked about what he was going to do to fight for the everyday worker for the rank and filer in these unions and so so instead of cozying up to businesses and trying to cut a quick deal he is showing that he's willing to fight uh, and to win more and to raise expectations. And that's precisely the type of, of motivation that socialists need to be supporting because we need to raise expectations of the working class. We can't let the working class be complacent or, or even just withdrawn from politics. We need to get them more involved, which means putting them in the driver's seat and showing them that they have the power, not just to you know, direct the strategy of these, uh, of these campaigns, but also to be able to win them through their power as well. Uh, locally here in New York City, I also just wanted to quickly highlight maybe two examples of the terrains that we're fighting on, which is in the state and in the workplace. 
Um, the Build Public Renewables Act was a big win by our eco-socials group here in New York City, uh, sorry, New York State, I should say. Uh, but a lot of it was done by New York City comrades, and uh, they were able to make a lot of these victories through you know, the long and hard organizing of uh, uh, lobbying uh, public officials, building out a really strategic campaign, and harnessing the bottom-up grassroots support of uh, everyday DSA members like ourselves. And then also I wanted to highlight, once again, the Barbacino workers who reached out to the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, who then connected them with an organizer and brought them together into a coherent campaign that eventually won a union uh, at Barbacino, which is absolutely amazing to hear. It's so hard to win new workplaces. It's so hard to uh, uh, bring people together and to exactly win uh, a union unanimously like the Barbacino workers did, I think is, it absolutely speaks to the necessity of organizing on the shop floor with these people who may not necessarily have had experiences with you know leading these campaigns, but have been brought into this work because of the conditions that they face on the shop floor. And so from victories like the Barbacino workers, like organizing a local pizza shop to winning a giant campaign to mandate the construction of new all-renewable energy in New York State. These are victories uh, from the movements uh, recently that have brought me a lot of joy, a lot of inspiration, and that I think can trace in large part due to uh, the successes of things like rank-and-file labor organizing. The reason why Brandon Mancia and UAW9A uh, endorsed the Build Public Renewables Act was in part because we managed to get uh, a committed progressive, a committed socialist elected to the 9A region through the rank and file strategy, through a union reform movement. And so I'm really happy that these, uh, these victories exist and that we're building upon them as we're looking to the future. Thank you so much for that, Honda. And um, yeah, BPRA is another one of the stories that we absolutely have to uh, give the shout out to, especially here on RPM. Lee Zishi, our comrade and eco-socialist organizer herself, has been reporting on that story for years. So it was really also cool for us as a socialist media outlet to get to track a campaign from its beginning stages through its success. Uh, and very, very um, kind of exciting for us to cover a story in that level of detail. Because one thing I observe about you know, the, the capitalist media is that it is very attracted to wins only, but not so much um, what it takes to really get that win, which is oftentimes a lot less glamorous and a lot more grunt work um, that doesn't really play um, on the nightly news. But fortunately, on RPM, we have the time and space to really dig into that. So um, we are going to go ahead and hear from our listening audience if uh, folks out there have anything they'd like to ask Honda uh, or contribute or even just send in a simple message of solidarity um, to the organizers that we've spoken to and the work that they're doing. The number here in the studio is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. And while we wait for any calls to come in, um, let's go back to you, Honda. And um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the labor movement can best work alongside 
other arenas of struggle. We've heard about the tenant movement. We've heard about the environmental movement. Um, things that are close to my heart also include abortion rights and access to gender affirming care. There are many other fronts that people are fighting on right now. Um, what, how, what's your response to that question? And what role do you see DSA having to play in that? Was that discussed at all at the convention? And, and what's your read on sort of the mood of the organization when it comes to questions like that? Yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally, our power comes from an organized working class. And so for me, it's very clear that uh, a lot of that is rooted on the shop floor. Our enemies are the capitalist class. And so we need to uh, be able to fight them at that side of struggle uh, in the workplace. But similarly, there are so many issues that really matter uh, to people that affect them deeply in their day-to-day -day lives um, and that require us to wage struggle in these other terrains, like in the housing world, like uh, for uh, reproductive rights. And so um, when it comes to us being able to bring the labor movement into these struggles, um, it's all about trying to stand in solidarity with those same union members who are facing those struggles, right? Because the working class uh, uh, is the vast majority of our society, uh, the struggles that uh, uh, people face with reproductive rights are you, uh, issues that union members face as well. And so by being able to bring these issues uh, into uh, labor unions and by being able to advocate for them and sort of center them as well uh, as partners in these struggles allows uh, you know traditionally marginalized groups to gain more power as they're able to rely on the solidarity from people who may not have these uh, the same issues as them, but stand alongside them as brothers and sisters in, uh, in struggle. Uh, and in particular, I think about, you know, uh, there are a lot of progressive unions out there that fight for these social issues, that might fight for legislation that protects ten uh, that protect tenants, um, that might fight for legislation that protect their workers and buildings, for example. And I think all of these struggles are so connected because the working class is everywhere in all of these struggles, because we're impacted the most uh, by, by these issues. And so uh, it's not just, uh, uh, you know, bring unions into these fights, but also about uplifting uh, the everyday struggles of those rank and file workers, which allows unions to then be able to be aware of and prioritize these particular fights. I would also say, you know, with regard to DSA, um, I think a lot of the struggles that we carry out in the labor movement involve uh, require skills and organizing that are directly portable these, to these types of issues, right? Organizing a rally for a union is exactly like organizing a rally for abortion. I think that organizing your coworkers to sign a union card is just like organizing your fellow tenants to come to uh, a, a tenant association meeting. And so uh, it's really important for all of us to be in these struggles and to bring these skills into the different types of uh, campaigns and organizing terrains that we uh, that we're fighting on, uh, and in particular for DSA, I think you know a socialist organization like this is a great sort of hub of all of these different tendencies of all of these issues for us to come together, connect, exchange, and build and support each other as well. Thank you for that, Honda. And I think I can speak from my own personal experience as an organizer. So many of the skills that I apply now in my daily organizing life as an organizer in the service industry, I picked up from organizing in other ways through DSA. So I can definitely speak to the truth of what you're saying about that. 
Um, I'd also like to ask you about a question that's on many people in the labor movement's mind right now, which is the question of independent unionism and how independent unions like Amazon Labor Union or um, at my own company of Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's United, uh, what's your take on how these independent unions will find their place within the labor movement and the relationship between independent unionism and union reform movements like we've discussed on the show tonight and covered on RPM in the past? Absolutely. I think we, we should maybe start with the problem of uh, union density. Um, we're, we're, we're looking at... Uh, uh, you know, and we're looking at an issue of working class disorganization here in uh, in America right now. So in 1954, union density was 35%, meaning that one out of three workers were unionized. We had a huge working class force. And that was a time when we saw massive change in our society. At the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency, that number was down to 12%. And today, private sector union density is a mere 6%. And so uh, if our power to win change is rooted in an organized working class, a unionized working class that can leverage its economic power to win demands that go beyond a contract, then we need to start unionizing people in the tens of millions. I think a big problem right now is that unions uh, with the most resources to organize workers are often very risk adverse and unwilling to take up uh, that type of giant push that we need. Uh, and I think that's a reason why a lot of people look to independent trade unions as, as a way to get there. Uh, but of course, we shouldn't conflate independent unions with being inherently more militant or inherently more democratic. Uh, at Amazon Labor Union in particular, we're already seeing a reform movement come out there with the ALU Democratic Reform Caucus to uh, make ALU hold elections and to focus on bargaining for a contract. And so I think something to keep in mind is that we want to reform existing unions because we want all unions to be democratic because when unions become democratic they're able to listen to the will of the rank and file of the membership and then we have the potential to really bring forward these types of campaigns uh, that can sort of energize and build up a militant rank and file movement across the country I think right now uh, there seems to be a hybrid model that's exciting that gives workers some autonomy in organizing, but also leverages the resources of a larger union. Eric Block has written a bit about this. He's called this DIY unionism uh, with regard to uh, uh, like Starbucks workers and Workers United. Uh, but in the long term, I think we're going to be needing to spend a lot more money than where people are right now, which is why I think it's so important to focus on reforming uh, our unions today, the ones with uh, the resources and the hundreds of millions of dollars, because that's what we need in order to unionize tens of millions of workers to get to a point where we can uh, demand for more. Well, thank you so much, Honda, for joining us here on Revolution Per Minute 200th episode. You know, one thing that I often take away from our shows is a sense of excitement, a sense of inspiration. Um, organizing is really hard. It's easy to get burned out or get lost in some of those kind of more grunt worky details um, and lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think your skill as a communicator is that you bring that big picture perspective and, and you've certainly made me feel inspired tonight and made me feel excited to be part of DSA and the Democratic Socialists. So I, I really thank you for bringing that um, to our show tonight. And as we come to the end of uh, our broadcast for this week, I'd like to ask you 
we usually ask people how to stay involved or follow along. You can answer that um, on a general scale for DSA. Um, but I'd also love to ask you, what would you say to someone listening to this show who has been on the fence about whether or not to get involved with DSA? Absolutely. I'll quickly plug two quick uh, two things. Uh, DSA Labor, we are getting ready for uh, our strike ready campaign for the UAW and the Big Three contract, as I mentioned earlier. And so if you want to get involved in that campaign, you can go to dsausa.us slash UAW pledge. Um, and uh, if you are not ready to start organizing with us for this campaign, but you want to give your support in some way possible, we also have a national labor solidarity fund that directly funds DSA members and their labor solidarity efforts. And you can donate at donate.laborsolidarity.com. And for those of you who are thinking about DSA and potentially joining DSA and organizing, uh, I guess my my pitch is that if you have progressive politics, if you have leftist leanings, if you have socialist sympathies, then you need to get organized to achieve those things. Uh, one of the most valuable trainings that I had uh, was uh, with Labor Notes, and they have an amazing workshop called You Can't Do It All By Yourself. And similarly, if you want to see change in society, you can't do that by yourself. Uh, you have to get organized with other people. You have to bring people together and come and act collectively in order to win those outcomes. I think the great success of DSA has been its ability to cohere tens of thousands of people around the country to fight for socialist politics. Um, I think the great successes of militant labor reform movements has been activating tens of thousands of rank and file labor, uh, rank and file labor organizers and bringing them into the reform movements. And so only by bringing people together, only by getting organized, can we actually achieve the great ambitions that we have as people on the left. Because in order for us to win something, in order for us to uh, be able to see the transformation that we want to see in society, we have to bring the collective power of many into uh, the single institutions uh, that, uh, that can wield that power, whether that looks like your labor union, whether that looks like your tenants association, whether that looks like a socialist organization like DSA. Thank you so much. Sounds like a great note to end on. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, to hear more about our guests or any of the topics we discussed tonight, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. I'm Amy Wilson. I've been here with Bernard Goiter and Honda Wang. And we all thank you for supporting RPM through 200 shows. Honda, our guest, said we're, we're, we don't want to be lone wolves. And um, if you know anything about me, you know that I, I love wolves. Wolves are extremely collective. So let's be like the wolf pack. And whatever the future holds, remember that you can make a difference when you take collective action. We will see you soon and good night.